Howell Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's energy-efficient windows keep the cold outside where it belongs, lowering energy bills. Get 0% interest up to the year 2029 if you book by January 31st. Visit PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. They call it the Milwaukee Slide. And it seems like every day we have a story about somebody trying to do the Milwaukee slide and they end up dead. This is the latest story. Now, the Milwaukee slide is this idea where you try to pass a car on on the right, like in a parking lane or the bike lane. You know, it's like you don't want to wait behind the car or if it's a two lane road, you don't want to move into the other lane. You've got to go past them on the right. Here's the story. This is 2.44 a.m. this morning. 23-year-old woman died after crashing her car with four passengers, including two children, on the northwest side early Tuesday. So it's 2.44 this morning. The woman was speeding on North 35th Street when she tried passing another car on the right. 2.45 in the morning, she's driving like a bat out of you-know-where, and she decides to go past a car on the right. The woman loses control, crashes into a light pole and a fire hydrant. She dies on the scene. Four passengers, two women ages 33 and 30, a 12-year-old girl and a 7-year-old boy were treated on the scene by medical personnel. An investigation is ongoing. This is the second fatal crash in the city so far this year. Um, 75 fatal crashes in 2022. So we're off to pretty much that same pace. And I just I bring this up just as a way of venting because it is so very frustrating to me. I mean, here you have a woman who's lost her life at the age of 23 in what is one of the most senseless, stupid ways imaginable. It's 2.45 in the morning. She's driving. You've got four people in the car, including two kids. And you decide, I'm going to be driving at a high rate of speed, and I'm going to try to pass somebody in the bicycle lane or the parking lane or whatever this is. I'm going to try to pass them on the right high rate of speed. What could possibly go wrong here? Oh, yeah, you can lose control. You can slam into a pole. You can hit the fire hydrant. And in this case, she ends up she ends up dead. You just wish you could get the message out to people that there are consequences for reckless driving. And maybe those consequences are you're going to injure other innocent people. Or in this case, the consequence is a 23-year-old lady has lost her life because I don't know. She was in too much of a hurry at 2.45 in the morning with a car packed full of people to wait behind the car that was in front of her or try to pass on the left. But no, no, no. We've got to drive at a high rate of speed on the right. We've got to do the Milwaukee slide, and you end up in the morgue. Incredibly frustrating, and I don't don't have an answer for it other than to say this happens on an almost daily basis, not with necessarily the fatalities, but where you have the massive wrecks. What do you need to do to try to get people's attention? He asks rhetorically. And I wish, again, I wish I had an answer to that. Hey, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. Posted a, a notice yesterday. 
I think was a huge development in the Wisconsin State Supreme Court race. Now, Patience Rogensack, who is the Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court, there are seven justices, and right now the split is 4-3 conservative to liberal. She is part of the conservative wing. She is retiring. She's 82 years old, had a very, very distinguished career. There are four people who are running to replace her, two conservatives, two liberals. And the two liberals are very, very liberal. The conservatives, judicial conservatives, no question about it. And the common thinking is that one of the conservatives will emerge out of the primary in February and one of the liberals will emerge. And then you're going to have the, the major election in um, April, which will be the, the, for the finalist. The two conservatives that are running are former Justice Dan Kelly who was appointed to the bench, I want to say in 2016, by Scott Walker, who ran for election in 2020 and got beaten and got beaten pretty badly. Um, and then the other person who's what I would describe as a judicial conservative is Jennifer Doro, who's been a judge for 11 years. She is, of course, the Waukesha Circuit Court judge who handled the uh, the Daryl Brooks trial. But her, her career is a lot more than, than Daryl Brooks. Like I say, she's been on the bench for 11 years. Before that, she was in the Waukesha District Attorney's Office. She also had a stint in private practice. So she's got a varied career. But Doro and Kelly are the two judicial conservatives. Interestingly, Patience Rogensack, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, she decided that she was going to make an endorsement in this race. She was going to endorse one of the candidates running to replace her. And in what surprised, I think, many people, she decided to endorse Judge Doro over her former colleague, Dan Kelly. Now, again, I don't know that endorsements matter that much. I mean, have you seriously, have you ever really voted for somebody because, I don't know, Scott Walker says this is the better person to vote or Jeff Wagner says it's the better person to run to vote? I, I don't know how much endorsements matter. And especially in some of these judicial races. But it is very, very telling to me that you have. Justice Rogensack, Chief Justice Rogensack, who is saying in their bid to replace me, I think Jennifer Doro is a better choice than my former colleague, Dan Kelly. Now, I'm, I'm on record in this race. It, it, there's, there's no question about it. I think I think both are judicial conservatives. I have no issue with former Justice Kelly, other than the fact that if you want to see a conservative get elected, uh, Kelly ran before and he got drilled. And I see very, very little difference. If you're looking for the most electable conservative, I think it is clearly Jennifer Doro. At least that's how I estimate the race. And it's not a knock on Dan Kelly. It's just all about electability. And maybe that's what Patience Rogensack was looking at. I don't know. But if you want to see the, the story about this, big news is in the state Supreme Court race, conservative Chief Justice Rogensack endorses Jennifer Doro. That's the headline. When we come back, the Biden administration wants to get into your kitchen and maybe your living room. We will discuss. I'll explain. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I am so very glad to have you with us. Okay, let's get started. 35% of the home, I think about your kitchen, all right? 
And you, if you think about your kitchen, you've got your sink, you've got your refrigerator, you've got maybe a microwave oven, you've got a toaster. And what else do you have? You have a stove in your kitchen. Now, there's a couple different kinds of stoves that you can have, but the way it works is about 35% of the homes in the United States right now have gas stoves, okay? The other 65%, um, well, they end up in a situation with it, uh, they, they've got electric stoves, okay? That, that's, that, that's the deal. And the people who cook with gas stoves typically love the gas stoves. They say, you know, that's why in a lot of professional kitchens, you know, you've got the gas stoves. They, they say that you can cook things more precisely. Look, I, I'm, I'm not a cook. I, I stay as far away from the stove as I can get. But, but the people who know say these gas stoves are, are a better way to cook. In addition, you know, natural gas is a lot cheaper typically to cook with than electricity. But that's another factor. So why are we talking about gas stoves? Because if Joe Biden's Consumer Product Safety Commission gets its way, you may no longer be able to purchase gas stoves. Here's the story, and it broke yesterday. The Consumer Product Safety Commission is considering a ban on gas stoves. And the argument is they are concerned with a couple things. First of all, they are concerned that natural gas, of course, you know, is we have to drill for natural gas, and this is all part of the effort to try to get away from fossil fuels. So the idea is if we don't have gas stoves, well, okay, you're going to need fewer fossil fuels. You, pu- you push people into electric. It will be better for the planet. The other argument is that gas stoves are less healthy when it comes to indoor stuff. Testing gas ranges, they found elevated levels of nitrogen gases. You know, and so th- those gas stoves that we have had for decades and decades and decades, now they're arguing, well, they pollute a bit more than the electric stoves. Now, of course, the, the way you would normally deal with this is, I, first of all, I don't think you have too many people that are dying as a result of being exposed to a gas stove, but also... The, the argument is that all you need is better ventilation. But they say, well, some of these stoves, you know, don't have the, the updraft, va- updraft vacuums and things like that. So the Consumer Product Safety Commission is looking, and I'm quoting from the guy that runs this. They're saying everything is on the table when it comes to this, including banning the manufacture of gas stoves. Now, I, I say this goes beyond gas stoves because... Think of some of the other things that you might have in your house, like gas fireplaces. Same sort of thing. The same rationale that you could arguably use to, you know, say, okay, this is why we can't have the gas stoves in the kitchen. You could arguably use to say, this is why we can't have gas fireplaces. And I admit, I I love my gas fireplace. The argument would be, well, you know, you're you're using. You know, you're drawing on that evil natural gas to, you know, have that pilot light that's there. Okay, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acun- that's the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, look here, here's the deal. Keep the government out of your kitchen. I mean, if you're searching for a problem, a solution looking for a problem, it seems to me that that is what this is. If, again, we, we've had 
gas stoves pretty much since there have been, you know, stoves that are around. On top of that, a lot of the stoves now, they're, they're not like your, your great-grandmother's stove. A lot of them don't have the perpetually burning pilot lights and things like that. Anyways, 855-616-1620. Joe Biden's Consumer Product Safety Commission is seriously considering banning the manufacture of gas stoves. Now, I don't think they would go as far as to say they have to come into the house and pull out the stoves that are there, although they have made it available as part of the, uh, again, the, the last uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, now you can get a rebate of 840 bucks on the purchase of a new electric range. One of our texts starts off, Jeff, I thought I jumped the gun. I believe you're going to talk about gas stoves. I do not have one, but I do know that you can control the heat faster on a gas stove, and that is why almost all restaurants and good chefs use gas stoves. Also, if you ever watch some of the rich people's homes, they have gas stoves, too. It's not like the gas stove when we were kids that had pilot lights that all have igniters. Now they all have igniters, so you're not wasting gas at all. Again, let's come up with all these new electronic appliances that will use more electricity when we can't keep up right now with the capacity that we use, especially when you get rid of all the coal plants in all the natural gas plants. All right, 855-616-1620. Do you think it is now time to move in and ban natural gas, the stoves that operate under gas? And again, my concern is once you do it with stoves, that the same rationale would apply to gas fireplaces or whatever. But right now, the proposal is only stoves. Let's start with Don in Bayside. Don, you're on WTMJ. Yes, uh, thanks for taking my call. You know, I, I just sure. can't believe the disconnect, how the Democrats have put these people into these positions. That, and, these, and the people now believe, where do you think electricity is coming from? It comes from natural gas plants. I, I, either Americans are stupid or they... No, they're stupid. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- thanks for the call, Don. Well, I mean, it's again. This is this is this kind of incrementalism. You, you you saw this, you know, years ago when you had the the limits on the flush toilets and and things like that. But 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 here, this is the the latest example of this idea that we're going to tell you what you need, Jeff. I don't want to lose my gas stove and my gas fireplace. Um, well, first reason they mentioned to get rid of gas stoves with the impact of asthma. It, it's right. There, there are multiple issues. One issue is they say that this is harmful, that that gas that comes off the stove is somehow harming kids. I find that difficult to believe. But even if that was the answer, that, that was an issue, what you want to do, then, then all you do is you say, okay, well, it's, it's got to have a vent. A new, new stoves all have to come with vents. That takes care of that problem. But I don't believe that that's the real reason. I think that's a stalking horse. I think the real reason they're looking at this is, again, they don't like the fact that people are cooking with natural gas. They don't like the fact that people are putting in natural gas furnaces, which is why, for example, in a number of communities in California, you cannot build a new house with a gas furnace. Um, Jeff, what happens to my favorite restaurant that uses gas to cook my steak or my evening out dinner? Well, you're, you're just out of luck. Jeff, the government needs to knock it off. Let me choose how I want to cook. 
as to gas fire as the gas fireplaces those were supposed to be cleaner than wood fireplaces well th- that's that's the idea because they they pollute the intrusion into private life just needs to stop Jeff the gas dryer will be the next thing to go an electric dryer is very costly you'll even lose your gas um, your water heater which is cheaper than the electric hot water heater right that that's another issue you follow this you let the camel get its nose under the tent and now it's going to be it's going to start off with the the gas stove and then it's going to be, well, go to electric water heaters. I mean, I've got a gas water heater. I, I love it. It's efficient. It's cheaper than the electric heater. Um, again, the, the gas dryers, all these different things. Get rid of the gas furnace, Jeff. Maybe we can use wood. Um, yeah, maybe we can use wood. Jeff, so what does the White House cook on? Interestingly, my understanding is they have, wait for it, gas stoves. <laughs> that, that's it. Jeff, obviously the eco-warriors haven't thought this one through. There's a carbon footprint to make electricity for all those new electric stoves. Um, yes, th- that's that's exactly it. Jeff, I don't have kids. I'm sorry if other people's kids have asthma. Maybe that's a justification for an electric stove. Or use a vent hood that vents, that vents outside. Banning the manufacture of gas stoves is absolutely ridiculous. What about gas furnaces, gas dryers, etc.? They are trying to force us to use electric. Absolutely. Lucy on the west side. Lucy, you're on WTMJ. Hi there. This is funny because I grew up in the south where I grew up in North Carolina. My mother would never hear of gas because she was afraid it would blow up the house. I grew up with electricity for, for the stove and oil. For the furnace, my mother was terrified of natural gas, and that's what people did there. Came out to the Midwest and discovered the joys—really, the joys of cooking with a gas stove—because you can regulate the heat. I don't mind government regulation as much as you do, but it has to make sense. I don't think this makes sense. The other thing is that if it, if everything is all electric, if the electricity goes out, you are just stuck. I was even thinking of replacing my current gas furnace with the ones that you can buy mostly. It's funny, mostly hyper-environmentalists who live off the grid buy these things because you can battery power the natural gas starter so that if the electricity goes out or you don't have electricity, you can still have a functioning stove and do things like boil water or cook if the electricity is out. I just don't think the dangers are that great. The biggest danger is people leaving the oven open if it gets cold and they think it's gonna heat their house. Education can take care of that. Again, regulation has to have a cost-benefit analysis, and I don't see it here. And of course, I agree with all of your callers who said, hey folks, electricity leaves a huge carbon footprint. Yeah, Lucy, thanks, thanks so, for the call. And I, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. Look, if you prefer an electric stove, get an electric stove. That, that, that's okay with me. You know, if, if you want to have electric baseboard heat instead of a furnace, that's okay. If you want to use a natural fireplace instead of, um, uh, again, a gas fireplace, but that, that has, I mean, burning wood puts all sorts of stuff up, up into the atmosphere. But this idea that we're going to declare war on natural gas with the idea of fossil fuels because they're using too much fossil fuels, where do you think electricity comes from? And we've talked about this on multiple occasions in the past. I mean, I, I don't know. Are, are we going to build more nuclear plants? Where is this going to come from? I'll post a link to this story, but this just came out yesterday. They are serious. 
and the director of the the director of the uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission says, no, everything is on the table. We're considering maybe mandating vents, but we're also considering banning this in its entirety. We're from the government. We're here to help. Yeah, our, our text line has just exploded, and, you know, it, I think this is one. It doesn't matter whether you're conservative or liberal, Republican or Democrat. I think pretty much everybody's taking the position that, you know, keep government out of the kitchen and let us continue to have our gas appliances. Another story in today's news that, that kind of screams of irony, but it's it's no surprise. Uh, Daryl Brooks, the architect of the Waukesha Christmas Parade Massacre, the guy who, of course, you know, drove the car while out on bail, killed six people, injured dozens and dozens more, who's now doing, you know, life uh, without possibility of parole. Now, we all remember the trial. Jennifer Doro, who's a candidate for the state Supreme Court, presided over it. I think she did a very, very strong job with that. So Daryl Brooks and part of the thing that made the trial such a circus was the fact that Daryl Brooks insisted on representing himself. Right now, everybody knew that that was a bad idea. And you had appointed counsel for him at the beginning who um, he he fired. There were extensive hearings, and ultimately the determination was made, okay, it's it's not in your best interest because the the old adage that says, you know, uh, an attorney who represents himself has a fool for a client. That's exactly totally correct. Well, you know, Daryl Brooks, I don't – I mean, part of the thing is he's guilty as you know what, so he he could have had the best lawyer in the world, and I don't think it changes the dynamic that he was going to be convicted. But, you know, Daryl Brooks – decided that he wanted to represent himself. He wanted to turn this into a circus, and and he got the circus, but now he's got the the consequences of this. So as soon as he gets convicted, he immediately files a notice of appeal, and I predicted this, and now it looks like it's happening. He, um, as soon as he files a notice of appeal, he, wait for it, requests that he has an attorney to represent him on the appeal. And by the way, this is your tax dollars at work because he's entitled to have the taxpayers of the state of Wisconsin pay for his appellate attorney. And here's where you get it. It gets really more interesting and even more ironic. Daryl Brooks's principal issue on appeal is certainly going to be the fact that he didn't, he was not competent to represent himself. And I guess it's sort of like, Okay, this is the ultimate Twilight Zone sort of thing. He insists that he wants to represent himself. Under the Constitution, defendants have a right to do that. So he represents himself, he gets convicted, and now immediately he turns around and the taxpayers pay for an attorney who's going to make the argument that he he shouldn't have been allowed to represent himself in the first place. So this is the classic example of somebody wanting to have their cake and eat it too. I don't think the appeal is going to go anywhere, in large part because I I fail to see any sort of reversible error. I mean, there's extensive findings saying that even though he was clearly advised that it wasn't in his best interest to go this route, he made the choice to do it. 
on top of that, like I say, he's guilty as you know what. I mean, it doesn't matter how many trials Daryl Brooks has. The result is going to be the same. He's going to end up getting convicted. But again, irony of ironies, the guy that insisted on being his own defense counsel is now using taxpayer dollars to appeal that conviction. And one of the principal issues is going to be, well, he represented himself and he shouldn't have been allowed to do that. Go figure. All right. Yesterday, these stories aren't related, but in a way they, they might be. Yesterday, we, we just we talked briefly about the Milwaukee County Sheriff's deputy who was fired and has now been charged for for taking four hundred dollars out of a out of a drawer. He, the, the deputy was in a home. He was um, proceeding. He was supervising an eviction. What happens is the landlords get the eviction notices and they go to to toss the people out and like the movers come in and they're moving all the stuff and you have one or two deputies, sheriff deputies that are on the scene just to make sure that the eviction goes you know, as scheduled and without any sort of problems or without too many problems. Well, what happened is the sheriff's deputy apparently found $400 in a desk drawer or something like that and he took it and he put it in his pocket and he took it and he put it in his pocket and he he ended up getting he's getting spotted by that and what ended up happening is you know he's been fired and he's been charged but he put the four hundred dollars in his pocket and i just remember thinking how how stupid not not just to do it but it's 400 bucks which makes you wonder you know how often this sort of thing occurs but i mean you, you threw away your job and your career for for 400 bucks and I can only assume that maybe the guy thought he needed money, which brings me to this story out of Madison. Now, in Madison, one of the things they do to screen prospective police officers when you apply to be a cop, one of the things they do is they do a background check on you. Okay, no surprise. They do a background check to determine you know, whether or not, I don't know, there, there's something in your background, like a criminal record or something, which would prevent you from taking the job. One of the other things that they routinely do in screening prospective police officers is they do a credit check. All right. Now, this is it's not unusual for employers to run credit checks and they routinely use credit reports as an indicator of, well, how candidates for jobs handle responsibilities and the extent to which they might be in financial distress. Okay, so let, let's take a, a non-law enforcement sort of situation. Let's say you've, um, you're, you're looking to hire somebody to, I don't know, be a teller at a bank. So you're going to be handling money. Well, okay, you run the credit check to determine, okay, is this somebody that's got you know, huge financial problems? You know, the credit check could tell you. Is this somebody that's way behind on all sorts of credit cards, has been in and out of bankruptcy? And, and if, the, if it comes back... And you find those things as an employer, it may be relevant. You say, gosh, okay, you've got somebody that's got all these financial problems. Um, I'm not saying they're going to be dishonest, but is this something that you should consider putting them, sell, putting them in, a, in a job where they're going to be handling money? I would argue the same thing is true when it comes to cops. You run a, a credit check 
to for the idea of determining, okay, is this somebody that's got that's in financial distress? Is, is this somebody that's on the verge of bankruptcy or has you know all the, these credit card judgments against them? Why would that be relevant? Well, exactly for the, the situation that happened in Milwaukee, where you, you've got somebody that let's assume that they're deeply in, in debt, they've got huge financial problems. Does it make them possibly more likely to, I don't know, pocket that $400 or whatever? It's not, I'm arguing, necessarily a disqualifying factor, but I think it would be a relevant factor to determine, okay, is this, before we hire this person for a law enforcement job, you know, what, what is their financial background look like? Are they in financial distress? In Madison, um, in 2022, the cost to run these credit reports was $700. So it, it's not like this is costing thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to screen applicants. It was 700 bucks. The Madison Fire and Police Commission has now decided they are not going to run credit checks anymore on prospective candidates. And the reason, they say, is that, well... Okay, we, we haven't found that many problems that have occurred. You know, normally if there's a problem, it's been unpaid child support. Okay, that's been one of the things. But they also argue that we think these credit checks could create an unintentional barrier for potential applicants with special emphasis on multicultural candidates and women. Per our research, they say, multicultural populations have disproportionately lower credit scores due to discriminatory practices that are rooted in systems of institutionalized racism. So if you're trying to determine whether you're going to hire a police officer who might be in severe financial distress, which might make them more inclined to perhaps, I I don't know, steal because they've got financial distress, they say, okay, well, we're concerned that this might disproportionately impact persons of a minority population, so we're not going to do it at all. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. This is another one of those stories where my response is, is, is give me strength. I would think that if you are screening for law enforcement, one of the things you want to do as part of the background check is to run a routine credit check. Now, if you find somebody that's behind in child support or whatever, that to me doesn't necessarily mean it should be disqualifying. But why wouldn't you want to know that before you're going to hire somebody and put them in a law enforcement role? If you find somebody, for example, that's applied for the gig, that's got you know a huge history of financial problems and their home is in foreclosure and they've got huge credit card problems or whatever, I would think that that would be something that would be relevant, that would, at least you'd want to know about before you hire them. And this idea that, well, we're concerned that this might disproportionately impact this type of person or that type of person, I, I think that's that's absurd. You want to know all these facts, and, and then you decide, don't you? 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I agree. It makes sense to me that police officers with money issues are more likely to become dirty cops who take bribes or blackmail criminals. I I, I don't know, but that would – look, I, I don't think it's – it's irrelevant if you're hiring somebody to be a police officer and they have a huge problem with, with money. They've been bankruptcy multiple times. They're getting their house foreclosed on. They've got huge credit card debts. I, I don't 
think it's irrelevant to whether you want to hire them or not, or at least I think you might want to be alert to that fact so you can do follow-ups so you can say, okay, you know, why we're going to take on this person, but, you know, we're, we know we've, we've vetted this person, we've asked these different questions. I think that that is a relevant piece of information, which is why I think it's just plain dumb to do away with credit checks. Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? Absolutely ludicrous. It's common practice for companies to run credit checks on potential employees. And, yes, from a practical standpoint, it does show whether they're in debt. But for me, I would think it's also a character issue. You know, you've got somebody, are they accepting responsibility for their debts? I mean, child mm-hmm. support to me would be a huge red flag. Um, it always seems like they're making special rules for certain groups, and it, all it does is end up shooting them in the foot. Pun intended. Uh, thanks for the call. I, I appreciate it. Well, you know, it's, I, I mean, I, I'll give you an analogy. When I started in the U.S. Attorney's Office, what, the, the FBI, now the FBI has changed, but under, under Hoover and in the immediate aftermath of Hoover, one of the things they did is if they, if, if you were hired to be an FBI agent, one of the things they did is they removed you from your hometown. You, you, had to, you had to understand that, you know, I'm going to go to the FBI. Once I go to the academy, I, if, if I'm from New York, I'm not going back to New York, at least not for a number of years. And one of the reasons they did that is they they wanted to make sure that they weren't hiring people who were subjected to, I don't know, undue influence. You've got friends who you grew up with. Maybe the friends are criminals or, or whatever they, they are, or drug dealers, whatever. They wanted to get you away from that so there was no possibility of you being tainted. This is, I think it's sort of the same thing. I'm not arguing that just because you've got a poor credit record or you've got some, I know, items on your credit report that that should be disqualifying. But at the same time, I guess I just think, like I said, it's dumb not to take that into account and not to try to figure it out and not know about it. Kathy in Whitefish Bay. Hi, Kathy. You're on WTMJ. Hi there. Hi. Hi. Go ahead. What do you um, think? I'm I'm open to maintaining the credit check. I think um, it's relevant, and I think they could make it more relevant. They could make it more defined as to what they're looking for and evaluate and see if if it's accurate or not. There have to be studies on correlation, and um, I think they should take that into account before they make the decision. Yeah, no, thanks for the call. I, I agree. Again, I don't think it's it's necessarily defining thing. But, okay, here's one of our texters. Jeff, I'm a property manager. I do credit checks. Credit checks are not discriminatory. Credit is a funny thing. If you pay your bills, your credit score rises. If you don't, your score goes down. A credit score is a risk score for me. And the question for me is, will I get paid? Getting paid to me isn't a race issue. Um... um yeah, I, I mean, I guess I kind of look at that. Jeff, usually the person that is in distress needs the job to relieve that burden. Um, I think, though, your assumption that everyone that has debt is more likely to steal is absurd. Look, I'm not saying that you're more likely to steal because you have debt. I'm saying that that is a pressure that's there. And if you have somebody that's got like a lousy credit rating, you run this credit rating and you find that there's been multiple bankruptcies and you find that there's been all sorts of problems with money, isn't isn't that something that you would consider? And if you say it's not, well, I, I think you're just, again, sticking your head in, in the sand. Of course that is something that's relevant. If you're hiring somebody for a job that, for example, is going to be 
handling money or doing books or whatever, and it turns out that their personal life is a debacle when it comes to that, there might be all sorts of excuses for it. And I'm not arguing it should be necessarily disqualifying. Jeff, um, lots of employers are reducing background check criteria because the candidate pool is no longer of the same um, is no longer of the same quality. Well, okay, that comes for like dumbing down some of the standards, I guess. And why wouldn't you want to know? That's the bottom line. Why wouldn't you want to know whether or not somebody is in this particular situation? Jeff, it's not so, it's not so much that they're in financial trouble, which might cause them to take a bribe. The deeper issue is what's their personality or why did they get in financial trouble to stop with, start with. Right. And, and that look, that might be it. OK, you've got somebody that's got some financial distress. There's all sorts of potentially exp- explanations for it. All right. You know, we had medical bills or this or that or the other thing, which is why I don't say it's disqualifying. But I do think it is reasonable to say, hey, maybe this is a factor that you should know about. All right. A lot of stuff coming up in the next segment of the program. We are going to talk about Joe Biden and whether the Biden situation is the same as the Trump situation when it comes to classified documents. A drag show at Madison East High School has now been postponed. And the streets of old Milwaukee controversy, I've got a slightly different take on it. We're going to share all that. It's coming up right after the top of the hour news. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So very glad to have you with us. All right. Is it the same? Let me kind of back into this topic. I have one of the things that over the last year has just been mind-boggling to me has been this whole document stuff with former President Trump. Now, the, the bottom line is that when you leave the White House, you are not supposed to take government property with you. And that includes top secret reports. It includes classified reports. You're not supposed to do it. And that's why, historically, when a president is getting ready to leave, either they've lost in their reelection bid or they've served eight years, one of the things that they do as far as like arranging the transition is you assign an individual or two individuals in your White House and they're responsible for assembling the documents and, and getting them to where they're supposed to be. This isn't, it's not rocket science and it's not something that is particularly controversial, or at least it, it wasn't. For reasons that continue to pass understanding for me, Donald Trump took all sorts of records which belong to the federal government. And, and you, can, um, you, you can argue about what his motive was. I, I still don't get it. I don't, I don't think he was planning to sell these documents to North Korea. I just think it was another example of Trump not thinking that the rules apply to him. But he took all these these documents, just boxes and boxes of documents, and he took them down to Mar-a-Lago. And, and I don't know what, I don't know if this was ego or just not caring or, or whatever, but he took all these documents that he should not have had. That's just the reality. And, and he kept them, you know, at, at his at his little compound in, in Mar-a-Lago, which also happens to be a club that other people come into all the time. 
And when it became known that he had a bunch of these documents, he was, I, I don't think he took it, I think it would be fair to say, and you can argue about intent, but he did not take returning these documents seriously. And the matters escalated and escalated and escalated, and now there is an investigation as to whether he's going to be criminally charged with having taken these documents and then largely having refused to return the documents after their presence was known. Now, I don't know what the Department of Justice is going to do. To me, I, the most amazing part of this story is it's just it's just an unnecessary confrontation because if you've inadvertently taken documents or, or whatever, once you find that they, they're supposed to go back, it should be really simple. Okay, let, let's make arrangements to get everything that belongs back, and if there's an argument about whether something is a government record or not, we'll, we'll sort that out. But Trump pretty much just kind of blew this off, and so now you've taken what should have been a minor issue, and, it, and it's turned into the, this major thing, which could result in charges. All right, so now the breaking news story is that Joe Biden's lawyers have discovered a small number of classified documents in his former office at a Washington think tank last fall. And now the Department of Justice is looking at this. Apparently what happened is the documents which were in Biden's former office dating to his time as vice president were found by his personal lawyers on November 2nd when they were packing files at the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement. Officials didn't say how many documents were involved, but apparently it's not that many. The White House then apparently notified the National Archives and Records Administration immediately. It said they were found in a locked closet, and then the agency retrieved them the next morning. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Here's my question. Is this the same as what Donald Trump was involved in? And should the scrutiny of Joe Biden be the same as what happened with Donald Trump? I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we'll discuss in just a minute. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Is this the same situation? Is the culpability the same? Should the outrage be the same? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, so it now turns out that in early November, Joe Biden they're they're moving him out of this former office that he had at something called the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement. And apparently, as they're getting documents ready, they find a couple documents, not top secret, but a handful of documents that are classified, dating back to his time in the White, in, when he was the vice president. His lawyers then immediately notify the National Archives that we found these in a locked closet, and the agency retrieved them the next morning. Is this analogous to what happened to Donald Trump? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Connie in Portage. Connie, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello. Um, I have a question. I'm wondering, uh, were these documents found in his office at his home or at his office at the White House? Neither. Apparently, after he left the White House, 
He had an office at this this think tank, the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement, from the middle of 2017 until the start of his presidential campaign. So it was like a it was an an office that he used. Lawyers were apparently packing it up in preparation to vacate the space. They found it not in response to any prior request from the archives. Um, so no, nobody really, I guess, knew this was there. And then they're packing up this office. They find it, and they turn it over. So that's what happened. Okay, yeah. Well, I, I don't think uh, that Biden would have known, and I don't think you can compare it to Trump because he took it to Miralago. And then he didn't want to part with him, which Biden, they took it right away to where it belonged. And we're very honest about it, but now Trump wasn't. So I don't think there's any analogy there at all. Yeah, Connie, thanks for the call. I, you know, and I, I understand I'm going to irritate some of you when I say this, but to me, these are completely different situations. In the case of of Biden. Apparently, these are just a handful of documents. We're not talking about boxes and boxes of documents. These are apparently handfuls, a handful of documents, which my guess is kind of got left behind when they were doing all the, the transition stuff. Nobody knew about them. They're in, you know, a locked closet in this office that Biden uses occasionally. And and right. Is it sloppiness? Should somebody have caught this and sent it back? Absolutely. No, no question about it. But to me, this is completely different than boxes and boxes and boxes of documents being taken from the White House and then not turned over despite multiple requests. And it it goes back to what I was saying at the start of this topic. I, for the life of me, you you want to talk about a self-inflicted wound. I, for the life of me, don't understand how former President Trump let it get to this stage. You're not supposed to have these documents. Give them back. And then, you know, yes, we've given you everything there is, but then it turns out that there's a lot more. You know, in the case of Biden, unless there's more to this story. Now, if it turns out that you start finding boxes and boxes of classified documents, maybe that's a different take. But this this to me strikes me as a couple folders that were probably missed when they were going through everything and returning it to the National Archives. They, they missed it. I guess I just see this as something that's completely different. Now, by the way. I'm not at all sure that it's in the interest of the country to indict Donald Trump for his refusal to turn over these documents. I I think that's a whole different question. But I guess I look at this, and to me, this is the difference between, I I don't know, going two miles over the speed limit and blowing through a red light at 80 miles an hour. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. And I, I understand that, it's tough to take politics out of this. And the people that think that Donald Trump should be, you know, put into an orange jumpsuit over this issue, they're going to have their feelings. The people that think that, you know, Joe Biden is just as evil as Donald Trump. But just on a factual basis, trying to look at this objectively, it looks to me like these are two different stories about what's going on here. 855 1620. Jeff, I can agree with you. However, this has been known since early November, and now we are just learning about it. Okay, that, that is a fair question as to, okay, if this, if this was discovered in, in November, 
and apparently that's the story, and nobody's contradicting this at this point. The lawyers are packing up the office because they're vacating it. You know, they're getting out of the office, so they're packing it up. They find these. They immediately call the National Archives, and they say, okay, we found this. They turn them over. There, there were no requests from the National Archives. There's been nothing beyond that. I mean, I guess I think it's fair to say, okay, why did it take four months for this to become public. Jeff, check your dates. His lawyers found the documents November 2nd, 2020, or one week before the election, or more than two um more than two years ago, it took them two years to disclose the classified documents at the think tank. Why wasn't this disclosed earlier? Okay, that's you know, that's a that's a fair sort of question as to why wasn't it disclosed earlier. And and, no, and by the way, the documents were discovered last fall. The, the documents were discovered in 2022 is when that ended up happening. Um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, got to be said, the crime is Biden in a think tank. Ar, 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 ar. They're trying to be funny there. Jeff, or we could start a crazy conspiracy theory that's a Democratic Party that placed them there so he can't run for office again. And I'm, I'm seriously kidding. Right. I think, you know, that's. You know, that's it. Jeff, you're missing the point that he had him for three years in that office. This is actually as bad as what Trump did. However, Biden's team gave them up voluntarily. Well, it's also there's a different number of of documents. I guess I, I look at this and what it sounds like to me happened. And I understand that there's some people we don't want to cut Joe Biden any sort of breaks at all. I mean, it sounds like, all right, you know, he's. He's leaving. He's got these documents that he's legitimately able to have when he's the vice president. They end up in a folder. It's supposed to be turned back over to the National Archives, and somebody misses it. And I guess I can easily see how something like this could happen. And then they sit in a locked room for a couple years. Nobody looks at him. Nobody sees him. And now you're you're cleaning out the office, and you find him, and you immediately turn it over. That, to me, is materially different, I think, than what happened with Trump. And I'm not arguing, again, that Trump necessarily should be prosecuted in connection with what he did, although, to me... The, the intent and the knowledge is much, much different. Donald Trump, and again, I, one, of, one of the most interesting stories would be if you could you know, ever get inside the mind of, of former President Trump and figure out what it was that motivated him to do this. I mean, all I know is if I was a former government official and I had records that belonged to the, the government, were supposed to go back, I, I'd do everything I can, especially when this was called to my attention, to get the documents back where, where they belong. This is not a fight that I would precipitate because, again, it's just one of these things that it seems to me that at the end of the day, it, it's kind of pointless about the, the whole fight. Jeff, I think this is a nothing burger. There's nothing to see here. I just think it's something, you know, to try and grab and create a distraction. Um, Jeff, to find them, you have to look that they've raided other homes or other offices. There's always a double standard when it comes to Trump. Well, the reason they got the search warrant and, and raided Mar-a-Lago was because the Trump people had said, we've turned over everything that there is, and they hadn't. The, the National Archives had asked for all these records to come back. They'd been told that, yes, we've given you everything, but that, that wasn't the case, that other people were down there continue to see stuff, and they weren't able, at least in the opinion of the people who did the search warrants, they weren't able to get this stuff returned voluntarily. If there's more evidence out there that Biden, from his days as vice president, has secreted all sorts of documents and is refusing to turn them over, that then 
then that's a different story. But the reason they had to do the search warrant in the first place was because Trump was refusing to comply. And they do the search warrant and they find all sorts of documents that should have gone back to the government. That, to me, is what distinguishes this. Now, again, I'm not arguing that Trump needs to be prosecuted here. And I understand that there's some people who just hate Joe Biden and want to see this as a double standard. But the truth is, if you look at this, the, and, and you try to like take off this prism of this, these glasses of I hate Trump or I hate Biden, these are completely, at least in my opinion, completely different circumstances. And, and, and no, do I think there needs to be a massive investigation as to where a couple documents came from? My guess is there's all sorts of government officials who inadvertently, you know, take some paperwork. The question isn't do they do that. The question is once the paperwork is discovered, what do they do? And in Biden's case, it seems like they turned it back in right away. To me, that's the end of the inquiry. And the truth of the matter is if the Trump people and Trump would have done that with the documents he had, we wouldn't be arguing about whether or not there should be an indictment. Rome, who is calling us from Milwaukee. Rome, you're on WTMJ. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Jeff. And uh, I want to apologize to you because I called you once before and I said you're normally wishy-washy on certain things. And today you're right on point, and i got to tell you you're doing a great job explaining that because a lot of people will try to conflate the two situations when basically uh, both, you know, made mistakes. But the, the difference is is uh, uh, Biden team, you know, they took care of uh, getting the documents back on time. They, they uh, made it known that they had them. Where uh, with the other president, President Trump, uh, they're trying to not give the documents yeah. back, and uh, really they're just holding things up. So I say give the documents back, and it shouldn't be as much of a problem. And I don't, you know, see where neither one should be uh, prosecuted unless they find out that you know something nefarious was done. Yeah, Rob. Thanks for calling. I mean, I get, again, that's how I. That that's how I, I guess I see this. Now, if there's more evidence that comes out, and if they start finding that Joe Biden has secreted all sorts of documents around and he's refused demands to turn those over. That's a different story. But this this is not the same story. And I'm, and I'm sorry. And for people who, again, want to inject politics into this particular thing and say, OK, this shows that Biden is the same as Trump. Th- these, in my opinion, are completely different circumstances. And this is coming from the perspective of somebody who is not a fan of Joe Biden in any way, shape or form. I'm just saying this is different than what went on at Mar-a-Lago. So very glad to have you with us. Boy, I tell you, it, it, it's, I, it, it's so interesting. Whenever you talk about Trump and, and Biden, it is interesting to me how, how tribal we become. I'm not sure if you can use the word tribal anymore. That might be one that we're, we're not supposed to say, according at least to Stanford University. But look, here's the bottom line. Of of Trump takes boxes and boxes and boxes of classified documents that he's not supposed to have. He takes them to to Mar-a-Lago and then he refuses to return them. And then his people or him or whoever says, "Okay, well, we've given everything back. And it turns out that's not true. So you have to go get a search warrant to get these documents back. That just flat out is not the same as Joe Biden has a couple documents, just a couple from his days as vice president. They're in a locked closet um, in a a private office. And 
apparently, you know, they're cleaning out the office, they find these, and they turn these over immediately. Those are two different scenarios. that They just are. And I say that regardless of whether or not you think it's a witch hunt against Donald Trump or not, they're just different scenarios. And I guess it's frustrating to me that people just, because we're so wrapped up and we either love Donald Trump or hate Donald Trump or whatever, or love Joe Biden or hate Joe Biden, you can't understand that these are different factual scenarios. Okay, let us jump in where angels fear to tread. We talk on this program a lot about the out-of-control juvenile crime, in particularly in southeastern Wisconsin. And one of the points that I, I make on a regular basis, and I, I think most people agree with me on, not all, but most people agree with me on, is the fact that one of the reasons why I think you have the juvenile crime situation that's so out of control is the fact that there's very, very little accountability. You know, you, you st- in, in Milwaukee County, for example, the district attorney's office will not waive juveniles into adult court um, if, if they steal cars. And it doesn't matter how many cars they steal, they're not going to get waived into a, adult court. Now, if you're a 15-year-old and you steal a car and you lead the police on a high-speed chase and you ram head-on into somebody and you kill them, well, then you might get waived into adult court. But as a general rule, you are going to be treated as a juvenile. We bend over backwards around here not to send people to adult court. So you don't get into that, that prison system. So the result of this is, in many, many, many occasions where you have juvenile crimes that are occurring, it is what I would describe as a slap on the wrist. And because juvenile records are, are quote-unquote secret, the public never finds out. You see the story that says, okay, 15-year-olds driving the stolen car, lead police on a high-speed chase, 15-year-olds involved in armed robberies or whatever, but if they're not waived into adult court, we never find out what happens to them. You, you just never do. So we bend over backwards to protect juveniles. If you talk to juvenile judges, one of the things they will tell you is that there isn't space. We don't have places to send these juvenile offenders. So as a result, if there's, if there's not space at a detention facility or whatever, we have to send the kids back to their parents over and over and over again because the space in the juvenile facilities needs to be reserved for the worst of the worst. All right, so for a number of years now, the juvenile detention facility in the state has been at Lincoln Hills. Lincoln Hills is a youth prison. It's located about 30 miles north of Wausau. All right, and Lincoln Hills has had, over the years, it's had a number of problems. There's allegations that, well, the, the inmates were mistreated, etc., etc. bad place to be. Well, part of that, and I'm not going to relitigate all that, but I mean, part of the problem, of course, is that you have really, really bad people. Oh, how can you say these are juveniles that are bad? Well, the people that are Lincoln Hills, they, they are problems, and they have been problems, and it's been an ongoing issue. But in any event, there's an order and there's been a decision that Lincoln Hills is going to be closed. And so there's going to be a new youth facility that is going to be built And the idea is let's bring it to Milwaukee County. And the argument, to me, it makes a lot of sense because the the thing is, okay, for the parents and the families who want to be able to visit their juvenile delinquent child who has been sent off, you know, it's a lot easier to do it if it's in Milwaukee County than having to travel, you know, a couple hundred miles to visit them. So that, that to me, makes sense. 
So we've been looking for a different place to locate this. And the state, in its infinite wisdom, has decided that we're going to build this youth facility. We're looking at putting it on 79th and Clinton in in Milwaukee. Now, to give you a perspective on 79th and Clinton, um, Clinton is just a little bit north of Good Hope Road and a little bit west of 76th. So trying to give you a couple of things, and, and somebody who grew up around here, let me, the, the corner, for example, of, of Good, just a little bit north of Good Hope Road on 76, on the east side of the street, there used to be that, that Johnson's Park, you know, with the giant slide and the batting cage and things like that. And if you were on the other side of the street moving up, there used to be like an Allied Pools and there was a Sam's Club. It, it's right it's right in that area. So it's about three blocks, again, west of 76th Street and a couple of blocks north of, of Good Hope Road. It's in an area which is primarily light industrial. And it's the site of back in the day, and if you're old enough to remember this, we used to have emission testing uh, centers in, in Milwaukee, in, in Wisconsin. It used to be if you needed your car to have an emission test, instead of going to a private place, there were emission testing things that were run by the state. This is that facility. It's 7930 West Clinton. And Eric's newscast, he was just telling you about how apparently there were some more hearings, and at least the, the committee that was hearing this is again, signed off on that as a location. All right. Here's what I think is is interesting, and there's a couple aspects of the story that I think are are extremely interesting. The facility that they are planning to build on this location will be a 32-bed facility, 32-bed. It limited the capacity to 32 juveniles. My question is this. If we, and I guess it, it's two-pronged. If we're going to do this, why would we build what I would argue is an unreasonably small facility? If you're going to build a new facility, why limit it to, to 32? Because my guess is you have a lot more than 32 juveniles who should be sent to one of these, again, detention facilities. And if... If we should be looking at building a larger facility, then my question is, all right, is the best place 79th and Clinton, or maybe is the best location moving up the street a little bit, going a little bit north on 76th Street, because you know what is on, I don't know, a couple miles to the north that is on 76th and Brown Deer Road. What's that? Oh, yes. It's that falling down facility known as Northridge. Our number, um, 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. I guess, I, I mean, I really take no position as to whether, you know, the, the, the suitability of the 79th and Clinton spot. I mean, a lot of the neighbors don't want it. I get that. But I guess I'm looking at this and I'm saying, why would you limit capacity to 32 juveniles, given all the juvenile delinquents who probably should be off the street? And secondly, if you need bigger space, then what's wrong with going up to that Northridge area? That, to me, I think would be the ideal situation. 
855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Seems to me like we're looking at something that's way too small, and if it's way too small, it's certainly not in the best location. Northridge for a larger juvenile facility. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. All right. So here, here's the idea. We're they're going to close. They're going to close the um, the, the penitent not the penitentiary, but the juvenile detention facility north of Wausau. Okay, so that that makes sense. Lincoln Hills. They want to build a facility in Milwaukee County because most of the people that end up in Lincoln Hills are surprise, follow surprise. They're they're from Milwaukee. That to me makes perfect sense. The location they've chosen though is on 79th and Clinton, which is just north of Good Hope Road and just west of 76th Street. It's a it's an old Department of Transportation emission testing thing. But here's it: they're limiting the capacity to 32 beds, which makes no sense to me at all. There's way more than 32 juvenile delinquents that need to get off the street. The reason a lot of people, at least the judges will tell you, the reason a lot of people that probably should otherwise go to secure detention don't get sent there is because there's not enough space. I'm saying, why don't we build a larger space and why why do you build something that's probably going to be filled the minute you build it? Why don't you build a larger facility? And if that site's not good enough, why don't you move it up the road? And what about that spot at Northridge? 855-616-1620. Um, I'm just arguing that seems to me like we're, you know, really... We're really not thinking this through. Jeff, I worked for the Department of Corrections for over 30 years. Planning and foresight is not something they do very well. That's why they're building the facility they are building. I mean, again, I I was just stunned. I understand this whole rationale for building a facility in Milwaukee. Makes sense to me. But if we would all agree that part of the problem is juveniles who need to get taken off the street aren't being taken off the street, well, and if part of the reason is we don't have enough space for them, why would you build a facility that only has 32 beds? Dean, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Dean. Yeah, Jeff. Yeah, this Go ahead. Is, uh, I can't believe that they could even think about it for 32 beds. In less than a week, they could have that place be filled up already. I well yeah I I got to pull the numbers but Lincoln Hills I I think Lincoln Hills has like 40 or 45 people there already almost all of whom are from Milwaukee I mean why why would you build a facility that's going to be full the minute the day opens wouldn't you think you'd build a facility that has room for expansion Lincoln Hills by the way um by the way Dean Lincoln Hills has room for like 500 people. Now they, they've, they've cut that down a little, but this was only going to have room for 32. It's crazy. And what about what about the Wales School for Boys down Highway 83 by Wales? They shut that yeah. down. I don't know how many years ago, but there's the the buildings. As far as I know, they're all standing yet. They had the classrooms, the barracks, and. I had a friend that was a shop teacher there, and he had to stop out and visit him one day. And I couldn't believe how some of these fifteen-year-olds the language they used. Yeah, yeah, Dean. Thanks for call. You're talking about Ethan Allen School for Boys, which was a reform school in Delafield. Um, it was actually it, it goes back to 
the, the facility goes back to 1905, and it was originally built as, as a sanatorium to treat um, tuberculosis. In 1959, they converted it to a um, to a like a reform school, and it operated as that till June of 2011. So it, it's it's a hundred years old, and that's when they moved the uh, inmates to Lincoln Hills. I, I'm not sure. I mean, it's just such an old building. I, I don't know. I don't remember what the discussion was as to why they closed it in 2011. But I, I have no problem with building a, a new facility. Uh, but at the same time. Why are we building one that is so small? Um, Jeff, 32 beds, ridiculous. Absolutely. Do it at, you know, Northridge. Jeff, why don't we pull the plug on the foreign-owned Northridge cluster and put the fact facility there? Um, yeah. Um, you know, that's... I think you you look at that, um, Jeff. There are still some empty spots in the River Point Village Shopping Center. Well, okay, I to me, you know, the Northridge is an ideal spot because ultimately it's going to be owned by the the city because they're going to foreclose on all this. We're looking for a spot for it. Now, again, I'm not against 79th and Clinton, except that I, I think that that site can't take more than like 32 beds, and that's the one that I, I think is is just. You know, crazy. Jeff, the bigger question is, is the best use of the old Northridge property as a youth prison? Um, my answer is from an economic development standpoint, the Northridge property has better uses than a youth prison. Well, I, I don't I don't know uh, about that. Haven't seen too many ideas as to, you know, what's going to end up going into Northridge. Jeff, you're absolutely right. A 32-bed facility is crazy. My dad worked at Ethan Allen in Wales for 30 years. It held about 150 to 200 in the 70s, and it was full most of the time. Fifty years later, we need more room, not less. Um, Yeah, I, I mean, to me... That makes sense. Jeff, I, I think, you know, you're talking about it's a great idea. You need room for expansion. You need room for educational and rehab facilities. I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure I hear anybody answering these questions. Why are you building a new facility that is going to be essentially overcrowded the day that you spend these tens of millions of dollars and, and open it up? And then, of course, the one thing I don't want to hear is, well, okay, it's, it's overcrowded. We don't have any room to send people. There's no room for expansion. So that's going to be our justification then for not spending. Um, for not spending, you know, people, you know, there. Um, Jeff, I think you're encouraging young folks to keep on committing crimes by giving them a way out. Their parents can come see them. Uh, well, look, I I don't think that's the – I guess I, I reject that idea. I mean, I think it makes sense. One of the reasons you put kids in detention is you want to try to get some degree of real rehabilitation. And to the extent that you have parents who care about their kids – and my guess is that's not all the parents that are out there. But to the extent you have parents that care about their kids, you want to make it easy for them to visit or at least easier for them to visit. And I don't think that's unreasonable. Jeff, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say make it 3,200 beds. Sure seems like there's certainly enough crime going around to, you know, fill the beds. Jeff, Ethan Allen is set to go almost immediately. Put $1.5 million into Ethan Allen before they closed it. It would be a great location and a great facility. Don't, um, and again, I just, I don't remember what the thinking was, you know, 10, 11, 12 years ago behind closing Ethan Allen, other than the fact that the building was, was so old. I mean, it was over 100 years old at the time. So, 
I, I guess th- this would be my question about this. Again, regardless of the location, don't you want to build a place that's available where you've got room for expansion? And because you do this, you build one that's too small, and it sure seems like we've built one that's too small. We're right back where we were before. So that, but that's that's just me saying if we're going to do this, um, if you're going to do this, um, let's do that. Jeff, would you rather have? Um, Shouldn't you talk to the legislature about funding a larger facility? Would you rather have a large youth prison or a $15 tax cut? Um, well, I, I don't think that that's necessarily the – I don't think that that's the issue. And I'm willing to think that most people, when it comes to public safety, would be very, very supportive of let's build whatever size facility we need for expansion. Um yeah, I mean, Jeff, if they build it there, they need to have room for expansion. Um, if it, if they need more than 32 beds, they can do like my parents did when I was young. They, they called bunk beds. Um, so now you can double it to 64 beds. Well, I don't know what the setup is, but build it so it's big enough. Build it so it's got the capacity to handle 100 or 150 or 200 kids. If you don't need it, you don't need it. But don't build it too small, for goodness sakes. Don't make the same mistake over and over again. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Spent the uh, time during the news break. We were against the text line. has been just exploding with people on different issues, and that's good. We were... I was um, reviewing a number of the suggestions. Everybody's got ideas as to, you know, where you build the youth prison. A number of people are saying, what about Ethan Allen? And I, I think the consensus is that um, Ethan Allen, which is over 100 years old, the estimates were to to modernize it would cost millions and, and millions of dollars. And so that's one of the reasons why that would not be acceptable. All right. I, I, I do this semi-tongue-in-cheek. But there is, is a larger point to this, and if you kind of want to play along and you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 I, I listed this. Now, one of the big controversies that has developed about the museum, the Milwaukee Public Museum is, of course, moving from its present space to a much smaller space. And as a result of that, not everything can go. That, that's just the, the reality. It's sort of like... When you downsize, you've you got to make choices. I would argue that the most well-known and the most popular exhibit at the current Milwaukee Public Museum is the streets of Old Milwaukee. And if you visited the Milwaukee Public Museum, I, I guarantee you that that's one of the places that you've stopped. And the, the streets of Old Milwaukee, for people who might not be familiar with this, it's... it's um, it's a life-size setup of shops, homes, and, and cobblestone streets set at the turn of the 20th century. And it's, it's just, it's really, it's a cool thing to walk through. It is incredibly popular. So apparently the museum is now saying, if I was hearing Eric Bilstadt's um, comments correctly, the museum is saying it, that that exhibit is not going to make it to the new location. There might be elements of that exhibit that make it to the new location, but the streets of old Milwaukee is, is not going to be as as constituted. And I think that's unfortunate because, candidly, I think that that's one of the things that makes the museum what it is. Now, look, I'm not one of these people who's just overly hung up in, in nostalgia. I, I'm the guy, for example, who says it's crazy to spend $65 million to you know keep the domes up. 
Matter of fact, during the break, one of our texters said, eh, I think what they should do is take this that where the domes is and, you know, use that as the new youth prison and then maybe double that with some horticultural examinations. I had to smile at that. So but of course, moving the exhibit to the new location is not a $65 million expense. It's not like completely retrofitting and rebuilding and redoing the domes. They could do it. They just don't have the space, and they've decided that they're not going to. So there's a lot of controversy involving that, and, you know, people will will get over it. But I I was just, I was kind of thinking, now, the, the streets of old Milwaukee are Milwaukee turn of the 20th century, right? All right, so we've had much discussion about, you know, if they're going to bring over any parts of that, what should it be? Well, I, I thought we'd, we'd have a little bit of fun here, and there, there's a larger point to this, and it's kind of tongue-in-cheek. I want you to think 50 years into the future, and let's say 50 years from now, you are going to have officials at whatever the version of the Milwaukee Public Museum is in 2073, who come up with this idea that say, hey, let's come up with the streets of old Milwaukee, but let's do it circa 2023. So in other words, it's 2073, and they're saying, hey, let's go back and and let's find things that were representative of the city of Milwaukee back in 2023. All right, what what should that exhibit include? And I I ask this because I think there might be a larger point after we come away with this. I mean, on my my Twitter, I I threw out a couple ideas. An empty trolley car? I mean, would would that be indicative of Milwaukee in 2023? Maybe a Kia with its car alarm blaring? Would would that be something? Maybe maybe a, a red light with a car blasting through it, you know, in the middle of the intersection and a police car behind it? I mean, you know, what... What would a museum exhibit, the streets of old Milwaukee, look like 50 years from now if we were looking back on present day? Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. I love the streets of old Milwaukee. I love going back and saying, hey, this is what turn of the 20th century Milwaukee looked like. All right, what what is 2023? What What would need to be in an exhibit 50 years from now that was reflective a time capsule on today. I mean, I think the empty trolley car would be one. I think the Kia with its alarm uh, car alarm blaring would be one. And I bring this up because, you know, maybe we need to start thinking about this now before it's too late to change the dynamic. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Okay, I I do this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but there is kind of this larger point. It now appears the streets of old Milwaukee exhibit isn't going to be moving to the new public museum. But I'm thinking 50 years from now, if you were a museum curator and you were starting to recreate a new streets of old Milwaukee 50 years from now, what would you include in that depicting the city in 2023? I mean, I I think, you know, that the, the trolley carrying nobody. The um, maybe a situation where you've got, uh, I I don't know, a a Kia with his car alarm going off, maybe an intersection, you know, with a red light or something and a car going through the red light and maybe a police car right behind that. Just uh, what do you think, Jeff? The exhibit should include streets that are closed off with police tape and crashed Kias and Hyundais in (laughs) the street. 
Well, okay, you've uh, got that there. Jeff, a locksmith shop. So many changes already coming. Jeff, maybe we should pick somebody getting carjacked. I think that would be it. Um, just wondering. Jeff, I would think they would need to include a falling down mall, mall on fire in their display. Yeah, I could say Northridge there. And, you know, how did Northridge go so, you know, very wrong? All right, let's talk to Rich in Glendale. Rich, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? I'm good. Okay. 50 years from now, what are the streets of old Milwaukee circa 2023 going to look like in that exhibit? Given that you said this is tongue-in-cheek, uh, and as yeah. a lifelong resident in Milwaukee, you got to have the occasional gunshot. <laughs> yeah, just kind of. It's got to be artificial, <laughs> but just the occasional gunshot, a low-caliber low pistol sound. We're all used to right. it. Yeah, as, as you're, thanks for the call, Rich. Yeah, as, as you're walking through that, yeah, you're, you're not going to have music in the background. It's going to be that occasional boom. You know, there, there's the gunshot. What did we end up with? 200 and, what was it, 250 homicides? Jeff, how about an interactive exhibit where you can be a Milwaukee police officer? Yeah, and, and maybe we could even get our exercise in because maybe it could be one of those situations, that car I was talking about that runs through the red light, you can pretend to be a, you could pretend to be like the police officer and maybe you can chase a hologram as the people, after they crash the car into the street light or into the uh, fire hydrant, you can, and then they get out and run. You can, you can kind of chase that hologram, see how you end up um, there. Let's see, Jeff. Perhaps a stolen Kia upside down next to a lamp pole with kids trying to hop the fence and get away. Let's talk to Charlie in Germantown. Charlie, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Today, Milwaukee would feature people walking down the street, wearing hoodies, nobody making eye contact, nobody saying hello, nobody waving, as opposed to the old streets of old Milwaukee where gentlemen would tip their cap, their hats to a lady, and people would wave and say hello. Well, thank you. Yeah, tra- no, thanks, Charlie. No question. It is a different time. Um, Jeff, we would need to be in a museum reflecting Milwaukee currently. There needs to be speed bumps on the street and and maybe a trunk load of guns in the back of a car. Jeff, how about a tent city display? Um, I actually thought of that as well. Jeff, there, there would not be streetlights. It's completely dark like my street. Yeah, that, that's the other thing, right? You know, the, the streetlights and stuff, well, we're, we don't have streetlights anymore because we, we don't, you know, we don't fix them. Um, Jeff, how about an, an insurance agency, insurance paperwork saying canceled for all the people who can't get insurance, like can't get insurance for their Kias or things like um, that. Jeff, some Bucks paraphernalia from the 2021 championship. Yep. Um, some Miller beer in case it goes to Denver. Maybe some TikToks. Uh, well, you've got an idea there. That could work out. Um, Jeff, for me, it's busted up Kias, a mall that won't die. Strewn bullet casings are musts in the streets of old Milwaukee, 2023 version. Yeah, you could do the, the whole thing with like the, the freeway. Gee, it's been how many days has it been since the freeway has been closed because of shootings? I mean, if, if it's been more than three or four, that's great. Jeff, it would have to have the bronze fonts. Yes, I would. I would include that. Must include, Jeff, a picture of Tom Barrett in Luxembourg with the golden um, parachute. Um, let's see, Jeff, how about crime scene taped? Maybe a boarded up home. I think definitely an empty shopping mall. Jeff, a broken down trolley car. 
Uh, Jeff, a bunch of scooters, cars with no license plates. Well, you have that. Jeff, how about a sewage pipe dumping massive amounts of sludge into Lake Michigan? Yeah, Jeff, you could put Giannis on there. I think Giannis would belong there as well. No question about it. Jeff, maybe teenagers riding on the hoods of cars racing through the streets. Well, okay. Jeff, put the orange thing by the Calatrava there. Yeah, that one's never going to go away. On the good side, Jeff, the Milwaukee Bucks. The bad side, flashing red traffic lights in the evening. Here is the bottom line, and here's here's why I, I bring this up. It's not too late. And I am not implying that Milwaukee, you know, circa turn of the century, you know, things things were perfect. But there are huge, huge problems around here that everybody knows about to, to the fact that, you know, there, there is this common thing. It's the car thefts. It's the 215 shootings. It's the police chases. It's the young people, you know, running from the, the cops on a, on a regular basis. We, we know these problems exist, and what's been frustrating to me is they are getting worse, and they're getting worse on a daily basis. And I, and I can understand you might have some politicians who come out and say, well, if you look at the crime statistics, other than, other than homicides, the number of car thefts was actually slightly down last year. It was instead of 8,000, it was 7,500, whatever the numbers are. But it's still this unacceptably high number. Here, there is a dynamic that is going on. And it is a dynamic that the powers that be need to get a handle on because you you can't just let this continue to happen. So that's the challenge. And I think it would be interesting to have people try to be forward thinkers and say, okay, if we were going to design the streets of Milwaukee for 50 years from now, what 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 do we want it to look like if it is going to reflect reality? And the reality right now is, while there's wonderful things that are going on, you've got the Deer District, I, I get it. You've got the Calatrava, those sort of things. You know, on, on day-to-day life, there's a lot of problems that have to be dealt with, and nobody seems to want to, to take that into control. Now, by the way, the other undercurrent that's running through our text that I agree with completely is the, the exhibit, The Streets of Old Milwaukee, I would argue is the most popular exhibit at the museum. I, I and in fairness, just like the domes, I, I haven't been to the museum in a couple of years, but I've been to the museum a lot more frequently than I've been to the domes. But not, that notwithstanding, when, whenever I go to the museum and I go to see, I, I don't know, I've, I've been there for fundraisers or events or something. We went there for you know some of the, the big displays they had, like the Titanic display and when they had the, the King Tut display. It, it doesn't matter. Whenever we go there, I make sure I make a stop at the streets of old Milwaukee because I love it. That's an integral part of the museum. And I think the fact that they're, I mean, if they can't move the whole thing the idea that they don't try to recreate it on maybe a smaller level i think is an incredibly dumb decision i I just think it is it's just a flat-out dumb decision but you know i guess you know that's what the curators can do they can decide what's going to work or not but you know the bigger picture is moving forward you got a lot of time to think about this and if you think about what's going on today and how you would create that 50 years from now there's a lot of bad stuff and and so maybe we've got time to turn it around we just need people with the ideas and the willingness to tackle the problems in a meaningful fashion jeff in 2073 
You buy a ticket and get into a virtual reality vessel that is in the shape of a Kia. You buckle in, and the first 10 minutes you're violently shaken as your car passes over many deep potholes and orange construction cones. Next, you veer onto a virtual reality depiction of Capitol Drive, where you pass the futuristic Century City property that has no business. Next, you head north, dodging cars, speeding past you at 100 miles an hour, and trying your best to avoid head-on collisions. Next, you end up at the old Northridge, and that's where the ride ends with you getting out. What a thrill ride. Hmm. Kind of like the, the, the cleverness there. But, you know, definitely I think, you know, uh, the, a lot of people were noticing potholes as well. That would be it. You know, those cobblestone streets, nah, nah, nah. Milwaukee in 2023, depicted in 2073. What you want is you want, like, the, those giant potholes, you know, with the, the red construction barrels and things of the like. Well, we'll see. There's still time to turn it around. You just need the wherewithal and the willingness. I want to just I want to follow up on something we talked about yesterday because I, I I made an assumption and a couple of people said well you don't know that this is is the case well I was pretty confident that I was correct this was the story about last Friday the six year old who was in first grade who took a handgun to school in his backpack intentionally confronted the teacher when she was trying to get him out of art class or move him to art class or whatever, pulled out the gun and shot her in the abdomen. Now, the good news is she's going to survive. But, you know, we discussed it from the perspective of the parents because the truth is there's really not that much you can do to a six-year-old. But it's scary to me that, first of all, a six-year-old would have the mentality to take a gun and and shoot somebody. But more importantly, my question was, how does a six-year-old get a gun? Because, I mean, do you, you hear stories from time to time about, you know, an accidental shooting. You've got a couple kids that are playing at the house, and somehow they get access to the firearm, and the firearm then goes off, and there's the accidental shooting. But in this particular case, the six-year-old <coughs> was able to get the gun, uh, disable, if there was a trigger lock, disable that, load the gun, presumably, put it in his backpack and bring it to school and then shoot the teacher. And, and my question was, you know, what, what do we do and how do we hold the parents accountable? Now, I had some people saying, Jeff, I don't think that that's necessarily fair. You don't know where the gun came from, etc." And my response was, well, well nuts to that. It, it had to come from the house and it had to be under some sort of control. Well, now it turns out that's exactly it. The police are saying the teacher who was shot by the six-year-old was shot with a gun that the kid got from his home. We don't know all the circumstances behind it, but the mother legally purchased the firearm, but obviously didn't do anything, or at least didn't do enough, to keep her six-year-old from being able to get access to the firearm, bring it to school, and uh, shoot the teacher. And that's why I wish it was more than a misdemeanor in Virginia for doing this sort of thing. All right, here is the deal. The latest Mega Millions jackpot just reached $1.1 billion, making it the fifth biggest lottery prize in U.S. history. The drawing is tonight. The jackpot has been climbing since October, the last time somebody won the prize. Nobody has selected the six winning numbers in 24 drawings, pushing the lottery prize past the $1 billion mark. 
All right, just one quick segment, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Are you going to buy a ticket? Have you purchased a ticket? And if so, why? I, I guess the, the thing that's always interesting to me is, first of all, the, the lottery buying a lottery ticket is about, it is just a, a little tiny one step above I don't know, taking a $10 bill and sitting in the parking lot outside the convenience store and lighting it on fire. That, that's just, that is just the reality. And I understand that somebody has to win, but the odds are so incredibly huge that, let's face it, you're, you're, for all intents and purposes, you are flushing your money down the toilet or you're putting that up in, in smoke. But nevertheless, you know, people end up doing that. I, the thing that's always amazed me when the lottery numbers get so high is the fact that you have people who say, "Well, it's it's a billion dollars now. I'm now I'm going to going to play," as if I don't know, winning fifty million or a hundred million wouldn't necessarily be you know life changing. I mean, to me, it's like, well, I mean, I I it it's just to me it's it's just the basic number of the math. And what I I really I've never really understood is why you play the lottery now, but you don't play the lottery. When it is a, a paltry hundred million or a paltry, you know, two hundred million or whatever, eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the old national talk, old national bank talk and text line. Are you going to be playing the lottery? Do you always now? If you always play the lottery, I get it. I mean, I know that there's people who just religiously, you know, go out and they buy two, uh, one lottery ticket or ten dollars worth of lottery tickets or whatever. But is the size of the prize? Is that now attracting you? 855-616-1620. Jeff, I bought $10 in the Mega Million and $10 in the Powerball yesterday. Why not? We could win. Well, um, okay, that, that makes sense to me. I, You know, if you win, I hope you remember one of your favorite talk show hosts. Jeff, I bought one Mega Ticket just for fun. Um, yeah, no question about that. Um, there, there is... There is that element that's going on there. And again, I appreciate that I appreciate that there's always the chance to dream. See, to me, buying a lottery ticket, like I say, makes no no sense at all, except for the fact that you're kind of buying this wish. And for the the time you purchase that ticket until the time they do the drawing and you lose, and the truth is you're you're going to lose, um, you, you have that moment where you get to sit and think, gee, how would my life be changed if I end up winning this? So for, for two bucks or if you buy five tickets for 10 bucks or whatever it is, you, you've got, you, you've got those dreams. And so maybe that's a small price to pay for that. But again, in those situations, I still don't understand why, why you wouldn't do it on a regular basis. And believe me, I'm not encouraging it because I think it's a, a really bad investment. Uh, let's talk to Bob in Burlington. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Jeff, I'm in it to win it. I only play on the big <laughs> ones. I only had two dollars in my wallet. I left the house. I asked the wife for another ten bucks because I didn't have any cash. I got about seven numbers. If you win these, you're going to be set for life, and you could hook up a lot of people and have fun. So why not? Otherwise, I'm just a working stiff. Well, Bob, okay. Let me ask you the uh, the question though. I mean, yeah, and I understand it'd be really cool to win a billion dollars. But my guess is you win a hundred million dollars, and you're probably going to be set for life. You pay your taxes. You take the forty, fifty million. My my guess is that's going to be life changing as well, right? 
Yeah, but I, I only get on it when there's a hype going on and there's, you know, okay. just that one time a month I get it, whatever. Two bucks okay. here, let's do it. Got it. I understand. Thanks for the call, Bob. I appreciate it. And again, I hope people don't interpret this topic as being that I'm encouraging people to go out and buy lottery tickets because if, if you want to do that, that, that's fine. But just understand you're, you're not going to win. I understand somebody sometime has to win, but the, the odds are, are just so astronomical, one in you know, a couple hundred million or whatever that is. But uh, to, to me, it's just kind of interesting. If you want to do that, you want to dream, I, I just, okay, it's a billion dollars. Now I'm going to play as if... Okay, it's five hundred million. I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have fun. Um, let's see, Jeff. Um, gambling is for people who are bad at math. Well, I think the people understand that they're they're bad at math, and and hopefully it's hopefully the people that are buying these lottery tickets um, are in a situation of you know they're not really thinking they're going to win. Jeff, you go to Vegas. Yeah, I I do go to Vegas, but sometimes I win in Las Vegas. My the, the, okay, so I play the horses, and so I, I don't know, maybe 40% of the time I, I'm able to walk away with more money than I started with. Most of the people that play the lottery, my guess is it's kind of a net loser, um, you know, no question about it. Jeff, I don't normally buy lottery tickets until the pot gets really big, keeps me from wasting too much on it through the year, and if I win a big pot, a portion may be used <laughs> to make something go away. All right, well, that's fun. Um, Jeff, yes, yes, yes. I buy a Powerball and Mega Millions every time I go to the gas station. I buy it with the extra dollar to make both of them three bucks. It's just six bucks. I don't sit in taverns, so that's my beer money. Um, Jeff, the odds are one in 302 million. I only play above 604 million. Um, horses have taken more than you have won. Well, I don't doubt that. I mean, I do some of it for entertainment. Jeff, I never play the lottery. I was asking the same question to someone who only plays when it gets to over 500 million. He said the reason was because he doesn't want to waste the money on every drawing. So having a jackpot limit restricts the amount of money he wastes. Um, yeah, Jeff, maybe people realize any lottery ticket is a bad choice, but um, they wait till the pot is high. Um, yeah, that's uh, Jeff. It's disingenuous of you to say that playing the lottery is like lighting your money on fire. Part of the revenue goes to the state to help fund education and other community programs. Boy, that's a heavy sigh on, on that one. If if anybody wants to argue that buying the lottery tickets is oh, you're doing something as a public service because you're contributing to the overall good of society. That one, um, that's a pretty tough sell um, there. Jeff, I got my tickets. If I win, I'm buying Good Karma brands. Well, I'm not sure we're for sale, but depending, you know, I'm, I'm sure everything has a price. Jeff, I have a positive attitude. I understand that the odds are so high that it'll take an act of God to win, but if God decides to act, I need only one ticket. I only buy one of the tickets occasionally. Uh, Chuck in Fond du Lac. Chuck, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Me and my other half, uh, me and her can sit and discuss for hours how we would spend that money and all the good that we could do for that. And it gives us a lot of entertainment. So that's the reason we buy it when it's big. Yeah. No, no, thanks. I I get. Well, okay, Chuck, before you go, though, okay, you're buying it a billion. But again, my quest the pot is is two hundred million. That my guess is you could do a lot with with that two hundred million, right? So why why not buy it then? Because <laughs> I'm cheap. 
<laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> Thanks for going. Okay, fair enough. That and that that's that's the the only point. Look, I I understand. I um. I, I pee money away on a, on a lot of stuff, and you sit back and say, okay, well, why did you why did you buy that, or why did you? So I, so I get it, and I, I mean, I understand the whole idea that the lottery gives you the chance to dream. I've just always been intrigued by the fact that there's some people who decide that they're only going to get into the lottery when it's th- this astronomically high. And by the way, the odds don't change. I mean, it, it really it does. Your odds are that one in I think that number is right, three hundred two three hundred and two million. So the odds don't change whether the pot's a billion dollars or whether the pot's a, a paltry $250 million. I mean, the odds are, are still the same of those numbers coming up. But I do admit it's fun to speculate on what you would do if you won. And here's the bottom line. For any of us who are part of this conversation today, if you have purchased the tickets and you have won, well, and you do end up winning, I, I hope you remember the guy that was talking about this on the radio. Or if I inspire some of you to go out and buy a ticket and you win, hey, you know, I don't know, buy me lunch or, or buy me a private plane. I'll, I'll be glad to take that at some point in time. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Okay, first of all, a, a mea culpa. As a number of people are pointing out on the text line, I've got a topic worked up on the, on the TV show Yellowstone. And I didn't get to yesterday, and I intended to do it today. And people say, what about the Yellowstone topic? And I appreciate you paying attention yesterday. We will get to it tomorrow, I promise. And I know I've been talking about this drag show topic. Um, I'm going to get to that one as well. I just want to leave enough time, and there's all these other stuff going on. Here, here's, here's the thing I want to finish with, though. It's, okay, it's one of these stories that, boy, they had one hell of a four days. The headline Milwaukee's four-day New Year's crime spree, three charged. And it talks about how a 27-year-old guy, a 33-year-old guy, and a 20-year-old woman have all been charged with operating a motor vehicle without an owner's consent in Franklin, attempted armed robbery Franklin, robbery threat of force Franklin, attempted armed robbery party of crime Franklin, and it goes on bail jumping, fleeing or eluding, burglary of a crime, kidnapping, false imprisonment, armed robbery, it was a heck of a four days. Apparently, it started, according to the criminal complaint, somebody went to the Milwaukee Police District 3 to report the stolen SUV on Friday, December 30th. He told authorities he was locking up his business near 20th and Brown Street. His SUV was running. When he turned around, he saw his vehicle being driven away. The SUV owner told police there were two guns inside. 5.30 p.m., December 30th, police responded to a report of an armed robbery at the Walgreens near 27th and North Avenue. Earlier in the day, a security guard indicated two men, this is the same two guys, one of them armed, had been at the Walgreens at 27th and North. They walked out. Then, 7 p.m. on Saturday, December 31st, same two people robbed a Walgreens near 91st and Appleton. Not content with that? They robbed a Lyft driver. Saturday, January 1st, police responded to an armed robbery near 14th and Edgerton on the south side. A man working as a Lyft driver stated he was in contact with someone known to him as Mady Brocky. He had given Brocky rides and began to develop a relationship with her. The driver had even given her money through a cash app. The two eventually arranged to meet at a motel in downtown Milwaukee. What could go wrong with this? The complaint says when the Lyft driver ended his shift at 4 a.m. on January 1st, he reached out to Brocky, who stated a friend was not at home and they could meet at a residence near 48th and Clark. The Lyft driver went to the residence, met with her. The pair went upstairs, began to hug and kiss, ultimately made it to the bedroom 
when both were disrobed, two other people entered the room. These would be the two guys that were robbing all the Walgreens, pointed guns at the driver, accused him of having sex with a 16-year-old, and began to demand money, specifically $2,000, to not report the incident to police. There are so many Wagner rules of life that were just violated there, including, um, you know, meeting a relative stranger and on 48th and Clark and going in the bedroom and disrobing. Gee, what could possibly happen there? The Lyft provider provided a credit card stating that's how he could pay them. They began recording a video of the driver in bed, continued to demand money from him. They then hit him over the head. 7 a.m. on January 1st, uh, the Lyft driver told police he was forced to enter the rear of a small of a pickup truck by one of the two men. They went to a residence near 14th and Edgerton. Um, he then got away and fled. 8.30 a.m. January 1st, Speedway gas station near 9th and Lincoln reported robbery. And then it goes on to talk about how these people ultimately confessed to this. They did a search warrant. They found a lot of this stuff. But, I mean, I don't know how you started the new year. Okay, I, I mean, I had I had a very, very nice time. You know, we, we saw dear friends two nights before New Year's Eve. We went out to a wonderful dinner with friends um, on New Year's Eve. New Year's Day, we had some people over, saw a lot of people, had a great time. Didn't occur to me to rob a bunch of Walgreens drugstores. Didn't occur to me to, I don't know, find some strange woman and try to hook up with her at four in the morning in an apartment that, you know, nobody knew of. I'm just saying these these this crew had a really, really interesting New Year for me. I think, you know, if you're not going to have friends over or spend a quiet New Year, maybe this is one of the times that you just find something good on Netflix and, and move on because there are definitely people out there who are going on their own robbery sprees.